today's podcast does look at the day in the life of a management consultant, but I'm going to take a little bit of a different perspective. Typically, when I've done these podcasts, I've talked about my own experience either as an associate, a manager, or principal, and so on, and how I've moved through the ranks. But today, I'm going to give you a totally different perspective where I'm going to address my views as a partner looking down on an associate. And I'm going to speak about one particular point that is raised by many uh, consultants who have just joined, associates who have just joined, and even candidates we've placed. A common refrain I hear is that, you know, Michael, the partner is really giving me a hard time. He makes all these negative comments. He's very blunt. He's very rude. And I don't think he likes me. And when I first get these messages from uh, people telling me that they're going through these difficult situations, I always worry to myself, you know, is this really what is happening or are they misunderstanding the situation? So over the last few days, as many of you know, I've been tra- we've been traveling through uh, Central Asia and we're about to go to Southeast Asia. So we've had a little bit more time to hold these calls with um, um, candidates and uh, readers of, of firms consulting to understand what they're going through. And by and large, I do not believe, and I'll, ref- and I'll repeat that, I do not believe uh, candidates... And now current consultants have a proper understanding of how management consulting works. So I'm going to explain to you how a partner sees it when he's giving this feedback and why you should be very careful about the insight or the um, interpretation of this feedback, right? I think the first thing you want to do is maybe just understand the context. Imagine you're in a project and you've... So you're about two months, maybe a week into a project, and you've meant to work through a um, consultant, or if you're at McKinsey, you're a business analyst working through an associate, and you're giving in information to a principal, and for whatever reason, you have to send your slides into the principal directly, and he comes back to you and he says, you know what, Hector, this is not good, I want you to redo X, Y, Z, and I need it by 5 p.m., and he doesn't even greet you, doesn't even talk to you. Uh, or, in other cases, it tells the actor, this is not very good, I think this is pretty bad, I want you to really think about how to do this, and I want you to go figure it out. And of course, you've never ever had an interaction with the firm like this before. You've, your interaction with the firm has always been positive. The interviews were wonderful, they treated you like a real rising star, they made you feel special. When they recruited you out of Harvard or whichever school you came from, you felt like you were on top of the world, and here you are, two months into an engagement and a partner is talking to you like he doesn't even know you, like he hates you. So what do you do? Well, that's one theoretical example. I'm going to give you three examples from my own career about the way I've addressed uh, uh, junior members on the team. When I say junior members on the team, I was a at this point, a principal, and I've had you know teams reporting to me. In some cases, I was um, sort of the de facto senior partner stepping in because of the subject matter expert, and another principal was even reporting to me on this engagement. So I'm going to talk you through three examples about how I address the team, and then I'm going to talk you through why I address the team in that way, because I think it's important you understand the underlying principles for why the discussion goes the way it is, and why you should not draw the wrong conclusions. And by and large, most people are drawing the wrong conclusions from this interaction. So the first one is a meeting. We're working a large telecoms engagement. We're looking at making a very substantial capital investment for a client, and our job was to understand the different options available to them. So there was a uh, couple of uh, engagement managers, there were more than one engagement manager on this project given the size of the project. I think at some point there must have been 15 people on this team. So I wasn't heavily, I was the senior person on the project, but obviously I'm not heavily involved, right? Because 
I have other things to deal with. So I've got another partner on the project and he's dealing with it. And there's, I think there were two or three engagement managers on this project or case leaders, depending on what you want to call them. And it was a Friday afternoon and I told the team, okay, I want, well, I told the team this about a, a week and a half before, I want to see an update in terms of where you are. And I don't want a long detailed update. I want a one page summary of what each team is doing. And we should do it on a Friday afternoon at about, let's say, 3 p.m., right? So obviously everyone's beavering around, scurrying around. We, they booked a big meeting room and I arrived. And, you know, I'm obviously there's a lot of junior people in the room. There's analysts, there's um, MBA level candidates, there's a few PhDs in there. So they're obviously a little bit terrified because they're about to do their first probably feedback session to the um, partner on the project. But more importantly, this is the first time many of them are going to be engaging with me because some of them hadn't interacted with me directly but they had heard of me and they know the high standards I have. So anyway, the the, the, the partner who's leading this, the principal, very young principal, I think he'd just been appointed a principal, goes up and does a presentation. So he starts off by giving a summary of what's going to happen. And he starts talking about the way they are calculating WAC, the weighted average cost of capital. In other words, the discount rate we're going to apply to the cash flows. So I basically stop him in the middle of the presentation and said, okay, I, can I understand more about how we're doing that? That That's basically on which the end... And how we calculate WAC will determine everything about the project. So I need to understand that. So he says, okay, I'll be happy to talk you through. And then I said, okay, but who's leading the WAC calculations? And this business analyst puts up a hand and says, well, very scared when she puts up and says, I'm leading. And then I ask her a barrage of questions. How are we doing this? Why are we doing this? Who did we benchmark? Why did we make this assumption? And she was obviously very unhappy about it because I don't think she expected to be questioned by the partner on the project directly in such point-blank terms. And remember something, right? Time is of the essence here. So I don't have a lot of time to deal with this. I've got to get to the issue very quickly. I have to be efficient. So I don't have time to tell her, tell her let's assume her name is Marianne. Marianne, I'm going to ask you some very direct questions because I don't have time. So to save time, I'm going to ask you point-blank questions. And to save time, if your answer is not appropriate, I'm going to politely stop you and ask you for clarification. And if I think that's not correct, again, for the sake of efficiency, I'm going to revert back to the person managing you, one of the engagement managers, to get clarification. She didn't really understand that. And I think she took offense to the kind of questions I was asking her. I was not happy with the way the partner was doing the analysis. I felt that they were going into a lot of detail without structuring the big picture first. I wanted to understand what they were analyzing, why they were analyzing it, and what they were going to come up with. But they were going into a lot of detail. And I remember stopping the partner and saying, look, I understand what you're doing. Well, it's a principal, junior principal, or associate principal, whatever you want to call them. And I remember telling him, well, I like what you're going towards, but I don't think we're ready to get there. I wanted to see a one-slide summary from each team which explains what's the key question you're trying to answer, why you're answering it, what are your hypotheses, and what you hope to get out of this. And if no one else has done that, then I don't think the meeting needs to go ahead. And I think it'll be more constructive for us to break off here, work on this, and maybe we'll set up the meeting again on Monday or Tuesday. And I think for many people in that room, they were very shocked that literally 10 minutes into a scheduled two-hour meeting, I would stop the meeting and ask for everyone to scurry away and redo their work. I mean, a lot of people were afraid. You know, they thought the partner was going to be fired that day or the associate principal was going to be fired that day, but we're very good friends, right? He's my associate principal. He's new, but I was the one who trained him, so I know him very well, and he, he knows this is the way I operate. 
I'm to the point. I have to be efficient. I have to get to the point. So there's no difficulties, but the junior people don't understand that. So I remember one of the very junior business analysts I hired came to me that evening at about six o'clock before she went home and said, you know, are you okay? It sounded like you were unhappy in the meetings. I said, no, I'm not unhappy. Um, I understand, you know, everyone's under a lot of pressure. So I didn't want to keep them in there if they're busy, but this is the first time she had seen me in a meeting, right? So to junior people, this would look like a brunt, sorry, a blunt attack on on the on the team and especially the associate principal but that wasn't the case let me give you another example right i had this really smart romanian phd working for me an older candidate i think he must have been 38 very nice guy i mean i really really liked him because he was a very he was a family guy. He always had these stories about his family. Every weekend, he was basically living my life. Every weekend, I'd ask him where he went. He said, no, he went mountain bike riding. He went skiing. He went swimming. And basically, stuff that I wanted to do, but I could never do. He was doing it. So I remember he was doing a project with me once on pharmaceuticals. And again, we were looking at investments. And he came to me and he said, you know what? Um, I've got my slides here, but I was hoping we could meet at 8 p.m. tonight on Monday morning. I said, why? He said, well, I've got to go to the gym. And I said, you do know the work is due on Monday morning. And he said, yes. And he made a big joke about it. I said, look, I would like you to cancel the gym today and do the work with me. And my door was open to my office, so everyone heard that. And, you know, people don't understand the context, so they assume I'm being difficult. But the point is, the work's due. He hadn't done it although he committed to completing it and committed to showing it to me before he left on Friday evening. But here it was just before 6 p.m. He hadn't done the work he wants to go to the gym. So all people here is that I'm being difficult with him without understanding that he hadn't met the obligations he had signed up for. Right? And again, I remember some of the junior people thought I was unhappy that day, but I wasn't. I was just stating a fact. You didn't do what you were meant to do. I think you need to stay. I don't hate you for it, but that's a fact, right? We will all... And I expect when I closed my door and we had the session, it wasn't a bad session at all. We were joking and kidding around. We were talking about his plans for the weekend and so on. But people do not understand that because of time, commitments, and the fact that I need to be efficient and get to the point quickly, I can't beat around the bush. The classic example, and I've spoken about these two people before, the two interns who worked for me. In the previous podcast, you know, what distinguishes those interns who make it and those who don't make it? One intern I remember comes in. It was, this was the first day he was there. I gave him work already on the first day. He comes in with the other intern. One's a guy, one's a girl. And the guy presents his slide to me. And I look at the slide and I, and I ask him, you do realize that smoking marijuana and coming to the office is illegal even though we're based in California, right? And he looks at me and... And there's a split-second response, but before he responds, I could see the eyes of the other intern becoming wider and wider because she thinks that, you know, I'm about to fire him. But the guy who I made the comment, he responds and says, yes, Michael, but I have a prescription, which I thought was quite a good comeback. And, and then I responded and I said, well, I'd like to see that prescription. But let me explain something to you. If I had to make this comment to just about anyone that think that I'm attacking them, I don't like them but I thought the way this guy handled it was fantastic he deadpanned the humor situation and he came back with a perfect comeback and it also showed that you know this guy can handle some of my uh, one-liners that I'm noted for given and he could deal with it but the point is 
I'm pretty sure if I'd asked the other intern the same question, she would have been terrified and assumed I'm about to fire her because I wasn't happy with the work. We had a good five-minute discussion afterwards where I showed him what I wanted. He went off, he did it. He came back within about two hours, showed me, hey, Michael, do you have one minute? I'm going to show you what I'm doing. It wasn't right, but it was a big you know, improvement, and I gave it back to him, and he went along and did it. Now, let me explain to you why the feedback from partners may come across harsh. You know, sometimes someone will bring me a piece of work and I'll say, hey, hold on a second, this is totally wrong. What I asked you to do is X, Y, Z, and I think what you're doing is you're simply scourging the internet and that's not good enough. This data sits in one, two, three, four, five locations. If you can't find it on the internet, you call them. If you cannot get hold of them on the phone, you need to go there. If that doesn't work, then you have to find another way to get in there. The point is the data exists and you need to find it. And junior people are very unhappy when they hear this because they think I hate them, but I don't hate them. The point is this, as a principal, I have, I can't, I can't tell you how many things I was involved in, because not only was I a principal, I was quite a high-performing principal, so I was involved in client activities, I was involved in the development of intellectual property, and I was in, in the, involved in the development of firm-wide activities, so I was spread across three areas, but heavily involved across three areas. So you can imagine how many different teams of people within the firm is, was, is wanting my time and how many priorities I've committed to the leadership that I need to see through. So I don't have time to explain to people in basically baby language, you know, that, you know, I thank you so much for this amazing piece of work. And I must tell you that when I hired you, I knew you'd be able to make it. And I can see that. But what I'm about to give you is just generic feedback that's going to help you get there. And you must not take it in a negative way. But I do want you to sit down for this and I want you to think very carefully. I'll be very happy to discuss every single point that you raise about my feedback. So this is the third feedback. Now, imagine how long that would take, so I'm not going to do it. I don't have the time to do it. And in fact, people need to understand that it is a business. I'm not being, I'm not attacking them personally. I mean, five seconds later, I'm pretty much laughing with them. And if it's two hours later and it's late at night, I'll probably invite them for dinner as well. But the consulting industry is built on efficiency. You, people who who don't work in consulting, always assume it's a very structured industry. Let me tell you something. Consulting is one of the most unstructured industries in the world. That is why we place such an enormous premium on people who are structured in their thinking. On a typical project, yes, we can plan the project in the first week or two weeks, but we don't know what will be required on a daily basis. It's quite normal that at 4 p.m. on a Tuesday, we realize the CFO wants something and we've got to prepare a draft by 8 p.m., that's four hours to do it, check it and then send it to him the same night. And that's just for one sort of module in the team. If you've got multiple modules or work streams, depending on the firm you belong to for the terminology, you can imagine how many moving parts there are. So the reason why principles are like this is purely because they need to be efficient. They, get to, they need to get to the point very quickly so you understand the point. When you beat around the bush, people don't understand it, right? So you need to understand that. So... How do you mitigate these things? Well, one of the things I try to do to mitigate this is that typically, if I went home early and I was one of those people, where, although I worked late, I tried to be home sometimes by 7 o'clock, sometimes 6 o'clock, but I'd be working for my home study. Um, I didn't succeed all the time, but pretty much by Thursday, Fridays, I was at home working for my study. And I made a rule that even when I was in the office, and it wasn't winter, of course, I would go to the balcony uh, around 6, 7 p.m., and I would call the key people in my team or my practice when I was running the practice. I'd call them, 
and I'd want to know how their day was, how they're doing. Even if it was a five-minute call, even if it was a ten-minute call, I'd call them. And I remember, you know, at one point when I was even married, my wife used to always wonder, what was I doing on the balcony calling these people? And I used to speak to people sometimes for three hours, not the same person, but sometimes the same person. You know, sometimes someone would tell me they've got a real problem they're trying to deal with, and I would help them with it. But I was not babysitting people. If I felt that they were try- being childish about it, they were not dealing with the problem, I'll tell them very clearly, look, the only way to deal with this is you have to engage the person, you have to speak to them. I don't think they have ill intent, therefore I think you need to engage them as if there's a misunderstanding and seek clarity. There's no other way to deal with it. So typically on a Friday evening, um, I used to go for sometimes drinks with some of the younger consultants, but I used to stay for 30 minutes. I'd come home, I'd go onto my balcony, and I would call people. I'd call people in the team who I hadn't spoken to, people that I'd heard were having difficult times, and I'd call them. Three hours of calls. I could speak to maybe, if you think about it, 10 minutes of call, six people, 18 people, right? Sometimes maybe less, sometimes 12 people, sometimes 10 people, depending on the situation. But I would call people to find out how they were doing. And I sometimes I'd call them to push them on a, on a project. I'd, I'd realize they were going too slow on a project and tell them, look, you have to step out of this. You're being blinded by the data and the data that you have is the data you collected. It's not the only data. You need to step back Look at the hypotheses and recalibrate the information and recollect the information. So I used to do this with the team, right? So the team always understood that while I was tough on them, you could always get me on the phone. My phone bill was one of the highest in the firm, period. I called everyone. I had a rule that if people send emails, it's very hard to interpret the emotion, so I never sent emails. I always called people. And when I did send emails, it was extraordinarily diplomatic. So if some point in the future the New York Times ever got a hold of my email, it wouldn't cause any problems. The emails were extremely diplomatic, but if I had to have a tough call, with, a tough discussion with someone, always over the phone. For some reason, people like to have tough discussions over email because they think it protects them and also the ego gets in the way, but it doesn't. It actually hurts you in the long term. So all my difficult discussions were over the phone. Beyond that, I had a rule on Saturday and Sunday mornings, I usually would have breakfast at one of my favorite restaurants, I had a couple of them, depending on which city I was in. If it was in New York, I had a couple. London, there was a couple. Toronto, there was several. Moscow, which I spent a lot of time in. There were several. Dubai, Turkey, there were many. Rio, there were a couple. Johannesburg, a few. Sydney, several. Depending where in the world I was, I had restaurants. And depending where I was, I would arrange uh, breakfast with members of my team. Sometimes it would be with a lot of them, like six of them, I'd invite them for breakfast. At other times, if I knew someone was going through a difficult period, I would invite him. And if he wanted to bring his family, I would do it. And the key thing about this is that while I was tough with consultants, I always tried to connect with them. But if you weren't performing, it doesn't mean that I was going to be easy on you. I was going to give you a hard time during the week, but I invite you for, for breakfast. But I was going to be hard on you during the week. There's no excuse. I remember one consultant was telling me recently, I spoke to this morning, a consultant we placed in a developing economy. She was telling me that um, um, she's struggling to find data because she is in an emerging economy and she doesn't know what to do. And I remember, and I, my feedback to her was that if she was working for me, I would tell her, look, I don't, it doesn't matter if you cannot find the data, that's okay, but I want you to step back and I want you to think very carefully about what you are trying to find and where the data is. Because you cannot get to it doesn't mean the data doesn't exist. I want you to be creative. I want you to call the people. If they hang up on you, that's fine. Call them again. If they hang up on you, I want you to go down to the offices and get the data. And she was telling me, yeah, Michael, that's exactly what my principal is telling me now. 
and that's the reality. Principals are going to pressurize you to get the best possible data, right? You work at one of the most elite firms in the world. Do you think that it's okay to just get good enough data? Never let good enough be the enemy of great. And the point I'm trying to make here through all these examples and anecdotes is that you, your principal partner, senior partner is going to put a lot of pressure on you. The most senior partners don't put a lot of pressure on you because they expect the principals and the partners to do it. Senior partners are basically the ambassadors of the firm. They're not close enough to put pressure on you. The principals and partners will do it. Even when I was you know, playing the pseudo role of a senior partner, I put pressure on everyone. My philosophy was I'd go to anyone to get data. I'd even bypass the project manager to do it. It didn't bother me. If, the, if I could get data faster from someone, I would do it. The final point I want to make, and this is a very insightful comment that was made to me once. I had been promoted to the equivalent of engagement manager, case leader, depending on what you, what you want to call it in your firm. And we were working on a pretty complex leasing project. And I was the sort of the architect of a very clever conceptual idea in terms of the way we would lease the product as opposed to selling it. And we had built the structures, but it was very risky what we were doing. Not because we we're exposing the firm to risk, but because of the name. Our name was attached to this, and we were also, I would say, helping the client along quite significantly. Nothing illegal, but our name was attached to what the client was doing. Remember, one of the senior partners came in, very senior. You know, I think he was at that time. He may have been the head of strategy, I think, or the co-head of strategy. And he came to him and said, "Michael, you know what you're doing is you're putting the firm at a great risk, and I really need to step up, buckle down, and fix this thing." And then he went off in some profanity, which I'm not going to mention here. At the end of this, he's uh, sitting there. First time I think I'd ever heard profanity in this setting directed at me, and I wasn't sure exactly what to do, but I remember making a joke about it, and um, the partner said, well, congratulations, Michael, you've now been promoted, you're part of leadership. I never understood that point until much later, and this is the insight, and you've got to understand this insight. Junior people never hear about difficult things. That's it. That's how you know you are junior. So if you want to know you're a junior member of the organization, I don't care if you're a principal, but if you want to know you're a junior member of the organization, the difficult decisions and the stressful moments when those decisions are made are hidden from you. When you are part of the leadership team, which means you can handle those difficult decisions, you are part of those difficult discussions. If you are junior, no one is going to raise their voice at you because they don't think you can handle it and or they don't think you have the ability to fix it. And it took me quite a long time to understand this comment from the senior partner, but I understood it later and he did actually explain himself a bit, you know, a few years later when I did make it all the way up the ranks. He did point out that, you know what, people who are going places, people we have trust in, people that we feel comfortable comfortable with, we will share the stress with them. We will share the difficult decisions. If you're a junior person and we're not sure you can handle it, or we're not sure you can step up your intellectual ability to help us solve the problem, we're going to hide the difficulty from you. So whenever I got screamed at later, I always took it as a badge of honor. My God, the partner must really think I'm part of the in-team. And you know what? My whole demeanor changed because thereafter, when I used to go around with client meetings, and I remember some of the partners used to have these difficult discussions about what was going on, and they were you know, going off on a tangent about how difficult things were. I thought to myself, well, I've made it. 
I'm part of the inner discussion where all these difficult decisions are being made. They obviously trust me. They think I can handle it. They think it's not going to make me lose faith in the firm. And they think I have the intellectual firepower to contribute to this. The bottom line is just because someone's difficult on you does not mean they hate you. Sometimes they think you can handle it and you can step up to the occasion. Most people cannot. But if you think you can, you should step up. And on the other hand, if you're always having these wonderful discussions with people and they're never raising difficult things with you, then you should got to ask yourself, you know, is there a reason they're not willing to have difficult discussions with you? Are you unable to handle the pressure? Are you unable to step up to the plate? And I know a lot of people may disagree with me on this, but you've got to think about this very carefully. Think about every leadership discussion that takes place in corporate America, wherever it is. Discussions aren't easy. You're dealing with people's lives, billions of dollars. Do you think it goes like a fairy tale? No. It's difficult to have those discussions, a lot of stress, sometimes profanity. It's normal, right? But it's what happens. But the more senior you become, the more exposed you are to it. And the more senior you are perceived to be, the more of a leader you are perceived to be, the more exposed you are to it. The less exposed you are to it, or if you're never exposed to it, you may think that the firm thinks highly of you. But my guess is most likely they don't think you can handle the pressure. And you may disagree, but I would like to hear your comments. But I think by and large, what I've just said make sense in the broader picture. So whenever you have these difficult discussions, always understand why the discussions are taking place because the partner is trying to be efficient with you. But if the discussions become really difficult, either the partner is being unprofessional or he sees you as part of his inner team and he wants you to step up and you know make yourself be heard. Of course, if the attacks are directed at you personally, that's a different story. If that happens, you will need to address it with someone in the firm because that is not acceptable. But if he's attacking the problem in a very vigorous way and you just happen to be around there, or if he's attacking your work in a vigorous way without attacking you, then I think you're okay. In fact, you should be able to deal with this. If there are any comments, I'll be happy to hear about them and obviously respond to any uh, posts that I put up. Thank you.